Aloha. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. I'm Bill Dorman, in today for Catherine Cruz. How do we make life in Hawaii more sustainable? A growing number of people are suggesting a closer look at the concept of a circular economy. We'll tell you what that means and get a preview of an important conference on the topic coming at the University of Hawaii. One year ago today, Mauna Loa erupted for the first time in nearly four decades. We'll check in with the folks at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park for an update and a look back. And indigenous textile work. HPR's Cassie Ordonia will share the story of a local designer working with fibers and traditions that carry a deeper meaning beyond their patterns. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, and for Catherine Cruz. We live in a linear economy. When it comes to consumer products, we tend to buy, use, and throw away. When a product isn't working, there's a tendency to toss it out rather than repair it. But imagine a shift, not just in recycling products, but shifting their design, production, and use. That's the beginning of a more circular economy. It's an important topic, not only among economists, but for anyone thinking about the future. There are many applications for advancing a circular economy here in Hawaii, and that's the topic of a conference coming up next month at the University of Hawaii. One of the key players in the planning and execution of that conference is Kamanamai Kalani Beamer, director and professor at UH Manoa Center for Hawaiian Studies. He joined us in the studio earlier this morning, and I started our interview by asking him to explain a circular economy in the context of Hawaii. The circular economy is really a response. It's an alternative. It's a solution to the climate crisis that we're all in the midst of. And it's a response to what we really understand as the economy, which um, is considered a linear economy. And by linear, we think about progress and we think about the ways that we manufacture and build all the products that you can see whatever room you're in right now. And it's really done in a model that's uh, called take, make, and what happens to it, it becomes waste. So I'm looking at a LG flat screen TV here in the studio. And if we can imagine how that's manufactured, probably likely somewhere in an underdeveloped country, they're mining resources paying people minimal amounts, damaging the environment to extract the resources that we need to make that TV. It gets constructed and it's sold to us in Costco. And what becomes of it? Profit is made and it's now waste. And so you take that and you multiply it across everything that you see and it brings us really to this point of where we're at with our environment and economy. So a circular economy is a response to that. And in some ways, it's bringing back the ways that we used to do things. So how do we manufacture things so that they stay usable longer? So that unlike that LG TV that's usually built to perish in about four or five years, how do we build and make things to last? So then when we do extract these precious resources across the planet, we don't have to continue to degrade and damage the environment. 
This is a very important concept for Hawaii because our island system and economy are incredibly dependent on imports and exports. In fact, food-wise, we're incredibly food insecure. We've experienced this with the COVID crisis. <laughs> we all remember running to the stores, hoping that you know our resources are gonna be still available for us. And so here in our islands, we're looking back at our ancestral systems and we're using them as solutions to, to inform what a circular economy can look like here in the islands today. You've written about the circular economy for, for a lot of years, and you write also in terms of the relation to indigenous practices. Talk a bit more about that, and especially as that applies here in Hawaii. Sure, sure. So I got introduced to uh, the circular economy through some incredible colleagues from the University of Augsburg, Germany, about... <laughs> Every year goes by so quick lately, but I think it's about eight years ago. And I was incredibly intrigued and inspired by a slide that they had. And the slide basically said, look, here's energy production in 1650 in Europe. And it showed a, a water wheel. And it said, you know, on the periodic table, here are the elements we need to produce that energy. So it was like iron, oxygen, real simple, plentiful things. And then it said energy in 2014, and it showed me a PV panel. And it said nearly every element that we need to produce energy for this PV panel is required. And we actually don't have enough of these supply, these elements on the planet to produce PV on the scale that we would need to power everything. So we need to rethink the ways that we produce power. It's not just about converting from one fossil fuel energy producing thing to a green panel. It's about the ways that we can reuse these elements uh, in, in longevity. And, and it follows a system of nature. So life has survived on our planet for tens of thousands of years because nature is cyclical. My, I'm talking here to you today, 200 years from now, I'm soil, <laughs> you know? And, and that's the beauty of Mother Earth. Here in our islands, our ancestors really understood the preciousness, the sanctity of the things that provide life to our planet and our people. We call that aina, that which feeds us. We looked at the water systems and cycles and, and we developed a level of sanctity to water because it produced life. Now, bringing that contemporarily forward to today, yes, Hawaii's experienced the overthrow, unfettered capitalism, unrivaled tourist extraction. And at the same time, in our islands, we've also seen the resurgence of lokoia, loi, uh, loi systems, wetland taro fields, fish ponds. I was at Paipaio Heia several years back. 2,000 people lined up gave the middle of their day of their times people from all over the world to fill in to reconstruct the walls of the fish pond this ancestral knowledge this linkage and care that we have for that which feeds us is incredibly inspiring to other people in the world my german colleagues when they saw the fish pond they saw that it was powered by tides incredibly circular <laughs> pond was built 800 years ago it's still feeding people today because it's built off of this recognition and the relationship between nature 
and the systems and cycles that provide life. So Hawaii can inform the world in many ways in how circular economies can interact with our social systems and structures. You know, you mentioned about water. You've been very involved with, studied water a very long time, written about it. Uh, you served eight years on Hawaii's Commission on Water Resource Management. When it comes to the circular economy in particular with water in Hawaii, your thoughts in that area? Water is the most precious valued resource, kani kawai ola. No one produces water. <laughs> we, we inherit what's been blessed on, on our planet. And that water system in cycle is, is one of the most essential circular systems that we can really think of and imagine. There is nothing more precious for Hawaii than, than our water systems. Because most people understand that, because water isn't a Hawaiian issue, <laughs> water isn't an environmental issue, water isn't a cultural issue, it's not an engineering issue, it's an everything issue. It's something that we all need. The attacks on our water systems um, through the structures like militarism and other things that we've experienced with Red Hill are really harsh reminders of the need for us to take courageous actions to protect and, and to care for and steward for the future, the, again, the resources that provide life. We're unlike other places in the world. We can't divert someone else's river <laughs> and just get more water. Um, literally, all we have is, is in the aquifers. And yes, you know, there, there are systems where we can desalinate um, ocean water and, and per perhaps supplement some of our, our water systems. But those come with high energy costs. Those comes with potential environmental effects. And, and the best thing that we can do <laughs> is to let the natural systems that we have that provide water to our islands be as ecologically healthy and, and plentiful and bountiful as, as possible. So um, water is incredibly important and um, we have to, for our islands, ensure you know, their, their longevity and their future. And, um, and again, it's not about uh, <laughs> demons and, and, and heroes. It's about caring for that which provides life. And, and whatever that system that's damaging it, um, we have to call that into question and we have to challenge that. And, and I've been inspired by our community, you know, the resilience uh, on the Red Hill issue in particular. You know, just a few, a few years ago, people thought it would be impossible to, to close down the tanks. And, um, and we've come a very long way. Now we're draining the tanks. There's a long way to go to <laughs> clear and clean the aquifer. And in fact, we're not sure if, if that will ever be possible, um, but, but we need to get all of the fuel out and, and decommission those tanks forever. Come on, Mike Kalana Beamer, director and professor at UH Monnoe's Center for Hawaiian Study. He'll be part of the UH conference on December 13th, Advancing a Circular Economy in Hawaii. We'll have more information about that up on our website later today. Mahalo for joining us today. Mahalo. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And please join us uh, for this PO Summit. Uh, many of the problems and the challenges that we face are tied to this extractive economy. Climate crisis 
is not something that's in the future. We're experiencing it today in our islands, in Lahaina, in our water systems and cycles. And one of the best things that we can do is, is to change the economic system to become more regenerative, to care for people and place. And it's imperative for the future of our islands. We're bringing in international experts. We're uplifting amazing community practitioners and, and doing everything that we can to provide a viable, real alternative for Hawaii's future. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. Have you checked out your skin lately? See any spots or dots that weren't there before? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the ways to identify common skin conditions and when to see a dermatologist, STAT. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Ethics and judges. It's a topic that's gotten a lot of scrutiny in the recent past, especially given some trips taken by Supreme Court Associate Justice Clarence Thomas, paid for by a wealthy businessman. But what about on a state level in Hawaii? Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair has some thoughts on that topic and joins us now in today's Reality Check. Good morning, Chad. Good morning to you, Bill. And you have an interesting column about the Hawaii Ethics Commission looking into this area. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. Thank you. This is actually something that I think a lot of people, when the news broke about not just Clarence Thomas, but Samuel Alito, uh, catching uh, seats on private jets mm. uh, owned by wealthy people, even Sonia Sotomayor, maybe having her staff uh, sell her books and whatnot. Who is overseeing the Supreme Court? Does it have a code of ethics? Well, as we all heard recently, the Supreme Court did come out with a quasi-code of ethics. It's fairly voluntary, not terribly enforceable. Uh, a first step, some said, others said maybe inadequate. But what about Hawaii's, as you indicated at the beginning? Does something like that exist? I, I can get to that in a moment, but I want to tell you the real hook here is that the State Ethics Commission is actually very interested in the idea of having greater oversight of the state judiciary. By law, it, it does have oversight of the employees that work um, in that body, but not the judges and the justices themselves. So how would we, meaning the public or the media, know more if, God forbid, somehow, you know, uh, a, a Supreme Court judge or justice accepted a luxury RV, <laughs> if you mm -hmm. will. Well, it's very difficult to find out that information. So the Ethics Commission has started what they describe as a conversation with the judiciary to to review the processes that are in place and maybe see are there areas that they could tighten or review to make it, if you will, more enforceable and more ethical. You know, it's interesting. You uh, also raise another point. Uh, you quote uh, the uh, present CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at mm. uh, NYU School of Law, Michael Waldman, saying that uh, 
You know, is this about uh, the, the, the idea of public uh, opinion on this, of whether this is accountability or the appearance of accountability? I mean, he's talking about the Supreme Court case, but, but just in terms of looking at this overall and the question of ethics and the judiciary. I think the, the fundamental issue is just what if there's a conflict of interest if in the case of the Supreme Court, you're hearing a case that somehow involves maybe that mega donor who paid for that RV or who paid for that airplane. There's no reason why that same uh, dynamic couldn't apply at the state level. Fortunately, Hawaii does have a, a code of ethics. It's actually called the Hawaii Revised Code of Judicial Conduct, and it's very detailed and I would say very laudable. Judges, for example, you know, should not be influenced by bias or prejudice. They should not be influenced uh, by uh, what the public is saying out there, that they should behave with the, the highest level of integrity and impartiality. It's very detailed, and, and we link to it on the website. But here's the trick. Who enforces that code? Who's the one that actually says, well, if there's a complaint against a judge, if misconduct is raised, what about a concern about the physical or mental capability of a judge? Who decides whether there's a problem? Well, it turns out it's an organization actually appointed by the Hawaii Supreme Court itself, mm -hmm. a seven-member panel um, called the uh, Hawaii Commission on Judicial Conduct. And, and so, in other words, you have a situation where it at least gives the appearance that the court is policing itself, which is the same criticism of the Supreme Court at the federal level. And one of those questions, again, is just uh, some of it goes to a matter of degree, uh, as you mentioned about the judicial code and, uh, you know, a judge shall not accept any gifts, loans, bequests, benefits right. or other things of value if it would appear to a reasonable person to materially impair the judge's independence, integrity, impartiality, temperament or fitness. Uh, that in and of itself is a little flexible. <laughs> That's a good word for it. I actually took a look at the last four years of the annual reports by this Judicial Conduct Commission to see, well, who got punished? What happened? Well, it turns out not many people at all. Of the hundreds of complaints that have been filed every year, only a few of them were processed. Nearly every single one, all but one case, was dismissed. And there was no mention of what was it about? Was it abuse of power? Was it bias? Was it conflict of interest? No names, not even the name of the court was identified. So I think that's the concern on the Ethics Commission. Is this transparent? Is this a service to the Hawaii public? It's an interesting read. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, Bill. Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair. You can read that column about the Hawaii Ethics Commission and judges at civilbeat.org. HPR's reporter on culture and the arts, Cassie Ordonia, is here with us this morning, and she's got a story that definitely links culture and the arts, and with the specific starting point of Filipino textiles and the work of a local designer. Morning, Cassie. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Oh. So what we're seeing now is the resurgence of Filipino textiles. Designers are incorporating these unique patterns into clothing, bedding, handbags, and even jewelry. So. Textiles are these geometric patterns woven by indigenous people in the Philippines. And this weaving practice dates back to the 13th century, but we're seeing Filipinos in the diaspora who are designers that are getting into designing clothing with these unique patterns. 
Yes, uh, last week I spent the day with Lydia Carrion at her home studio. She's a Hawaii-based fashion designer who started making clothes in 2017. She wants to educate Filipino Americans about their culture through clothing. At that time, I started thinking about like, okay, how do you really represent over 7,000 islands with just Filipiniana or just Mani Pacquiao or just a jeepney? Those are the very familiar things. And a lot of these things are already washed out of context. They needed to like make it cater to a Western stage. So, you know, I started digging, studying, you know, I went back on my own, started visiting all of these communities. And I was like, okay, there's this vast and diverse musicality in the Philippines and music culture. And then there's dance, movements, martial arts, and then there's weaving. So I was like, what would be a good entry point for a Filipino-American story or a narrative? Because all of us here, most of us here, especially the ones that are born and raised here, their parents assimilate. So they're in this narrative where like, I'm looking for who I am, or I'm looking for what my lineage is, where I came from. So I realized like, you know, maybe starting out with educating people through clothing would be a good start. You know, that's a really interesting point, just in terms of it's, it's using storytelling in a different way, in a different form as a key into something that's so much, so much deeper. And in terms of diversity, people forget sometimes it's 7,000 islands, but the extent of that diversity within the Philippines itself. 7,000 islands, that's a lot of islands that a lot of people didn't know about. And within those 7,000 islands, the Philippines has more than 140 ethno-linguistic groups. Wow. And many have their own cultures. So these patterns that we're seeing with the bright colors that are woven from certain fiber materials like avocá represent the environment around them. So it represents the rivers and the mountains that these tribes were in, the indigenous folks of the Philippines uh, were in. And so some patterns are also created as a portal to your ancestors. Some of them represent um, an establishment of rank in a tribe, or um, some are also used to ward off bad spirits. For example, when Lydia was showing me her collection, um, those patterns that ward off the bad spirit, they kind of have a psychedelic effect. So Hmm. think of it as kind of like a row of squares, but it's kind of circling into it. So those are supposed to represent Um, warding off bad spirits. Um, I saw her, she's in her third trimester, still working, but she's doing smaller projects. So she's been working on making Christmas stockings for her family. So she has Mm -hmm. a four-year-old right now, and um, those psychedelic patterns are actually woven into her Christmas stocking that she's going to give to her daughter for Christmas. Oh, nice. So Lydia's brand is called Daily Malong, uh, with the motto, Indigenous is the Future. She tries to keep her work indigenous, but has a couple Filipiniana. And Filipiniana, as you know, it's the butterfly sleeve, um, which is the exaggerated shoulders. It's supposed to basically represent what Filipino women look like. But uh, she doesn't want people to forget that Filipiniana was created during the Spanish colonial era. So this is like when the missionaries were coming in and they kind of want them to be represented as the Virgin Mary, at least that's what Lydia said. But there's a forgotten history behind the butterfly sleeves. Because it's very unique, Imelda Marcos, during their reign, decided it to be like the national costume or the national clothing of the country. 
Um, and I think there's a lot to unravel and decolonize and re-indigenize around that because for a lot of our people who have fought the atrocities around the Spanish colonization, they have used those leaves as a functional piece for them to hide their knives so they can fight the Spaniards behind their backs when they need to survive. Wow, talk about form follows function. (laughs) That's a a unique uh, uh, look at that. I did not realize that. It's very clever, but we're not in those times anymore. So can you imagine someone wearing a Filipiniana and like kind of using it to hide your weapons? We don't do that no more. (laughs) Um, Lydia's clothing has also been featured in New York Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week. She was also featured in Vogue magazine. But what's What we're seeing now is the younger generation of Filipinos has caught wind of Lydia's work. And um, for those who may know in Hawaii, um, she's worked with social media influencers Princess May and Bretman Rock. Those two are siblings. They're originally from the Philippines, moved over at a very young age. They actually stay on the leeward side. And these folks have millions of followers on social media. Um, So... For these influencers who are Filipino taking an interest in Filipino textiles, it's a big deal because they represent the younger generation. And Lydia said it makes it feel like she's done her job. It makes me feel better about what future my daughter would have. Because 10 years from now, if her elders are going to be people who can speak about their textiles, who can speak about their culture, who can really stand up and be confidently be speaking about their culture, She's in good hands. I don't have to do that job anymore. You know, that's a real educational piece as well in terms of the design because it opens up. I come back to that storytelling idea because it is so much of a story of a history that's involved in that as well. And what I really appreciate about Lydia's work is that she wants to learn about weaving, but the only thing is that because she got pregnant, she can't learn the traditional way of weaving. So what she does as a designer is sketch down the idea of like what would make a good um, what would make a good dress or sometimes she'll even make bedding if you go to daily Malong on her website she has like multiple accessories what would make a good handbag and so she'll envision it and then she'll create it and then this comes out as the Filipino textiles and as for me getting to the reporting I remember I pitched to you I was like I want to do a story about Filipiniana but mm-hmm. as I was talking to more of the community they were like why do you want to do a story about Filipiniana? It's colonized. And I was like, well, that's what I remember for me as a Filipino American is the Filipiniana is like this representation and talking to Lydia, it, there's more to the Filipino culture than the Filipiniana. And like she said earlier, there's more to the Filipino, Filipino culture than the jeepney or- Manny Pacquiao. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, it's spreading more awareness about the culture and the art form. Cause when you see the Filipino textiles, a lot of these motifs you'll see it in the Filipino tattoos. You'll see Mm. it in pottery, which is another ancient form of Filipino artwork. Right. And those links, again, tying past to present. And and as she says, in terms of people, influencers and others getting ideas and thoughts, carrying it into the future really as well. For sure. Um, So I'm very excited to see what she has in store for the future. And I'm also excited for the younger generation to get to know their culture through this art form. Really fascinating. Thanks for uh, for coming by and talking a bit uh, about that and introducing us. Cassie Ordonia, we've been talking with this morning. She covers culture and the arts here at HPR. You can find her stories on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Behind every program you hear on HPR is a team of people bringing you the programs you rely on. News and information on HPR 1, classical music on HPR 2, Hawaiian music on Kanikapila Sunday and Hawaiikula Iwi, and everything in between. Your $10 a month donation to this nonprofit broadcaster helps support the people behind your favorite programs. Give today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from Nohea Gallery at Kahala Mall, featuring handcrafted jewelry, art, local woodwork, and gifts for entertaining from Hawaii artists. NoheaGallery.com Today marks the one-year anniversary of the 2022 Mauna Loa eruption. The dormant volcano on the Big Island came to life for the first time in nearly 40 years. During a roughly 14-day event, the U.S. Geological Survey estimates nearly 9 billion cubic feet of lava erupted to form a flow that extended over 12 miles down the mountain's slope. No structures or lives were lost. The lava did come within a mile of the Daniel K. Inoue Highway and for a time threatened to impact commercial traffic and commuters as well. Jessica Farrakane is the spokesperson for the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. The conversations Russell Subiona called her up this morning to get an update on recent park closures and reflect on the Mauna Loa eruption. Chain of Craters Road and all of the attractions along that area, like Devastation, Keanu Kakoi, they've, they've reopened. That was pretty much a 24-hour closure when we saw increased seismicity happening in the lower, the upper east rift zone of Kilauea Volcano. So we closed that area after consulting with USGS, and we weren't sure if lava was going to pop out somewhere in the remote upper east rift, and we needed to keep people safe and out of those areas. The seismic activity that has been going on, as far as you know, does it indicate any events happening soon or is it just kind of some minor rumblings? Uh, Well, it's not minor. We don't close things for just minor rumblings. What's happening right now is Kilauea is in in an agitated state of unrest. There has been a lot of seismic activity um, near the caldera Halema'oma'o and Kaluapele, but also in that south-southwest rift zone area. And then we've had some activity in the upper east rift. So the areas that sort of flank Halema'oma'o crater, has been, we've definitely been keeping an eye on them. Magma is definitely on the move. That volcano will definitely erupt again, and maybe without any warning. But these earthquakes are kind of telling us she's going to do something pretty soon. It could be weeks, it could be months, but there, there's probably an eruption in the works. Okay. And you're, you're talking about Kilauea Caldera, the Haleamamao crater in the park, right? 
We don't know whether the eruption will happen in Halemaumau again in the summit crater like it has for the last five eruptions. Those eruptions are much easier to manage because they're in that caldera. There's a lot of viewing points. It's not threatening any infrastructure or roads in the park or facilities. This latest earthquake activity that started in around October through now, where it's going out to the south-southwest, also to the upper east rift, those areas are further from the caldera. They're, you know, they could be fissure eruptions like we saw with Kamoa Moa back in 2011, where the ground opens up like a zipper and curtains of fire eject out. And they, they're in remote areas where if people are in those areas, then we have to do search and rescues and evacuations. So um, the closures we have in place right now, especially in the Kau Desert, those are necessary closures to keep people safe. And I, I know that an eruption in Halemaumau is something that brings visitors to the park as well. When we think about the recovery period that the Big Island tourism industry has gone through since the 2018 eruption and the recovery that Hawaii Volcanoes National Park has gone through since that time as well, can you, can you uh, give us kind of a snapshot on what visitor numbers are like today, how, how the recovery has been? Most of the park is open today. You know, if you had to compare, I think it was September 24th, 2018, when we reopened after being closed in unprecedented 134 days, pretty much the same things are open. The summit area, Chain of Craters Road, our Kahuku unit, of course, that was even closed for a while because of the VOG that was coming out of the 2018 eruption and collapse and the ash. But all those areas are open now. What's closed, and a lot of people don't realize this, is the back portion of Crater Rim Drive that once encircled the entire caldera. Part of that has been closed since 2008, so for much longer than 2018, because Halima'oma'u began to erupt back in 2008, and there was so much gas coming out that that was the downwind area. So we kept people out of there because of the very hazardous and potentially fatal volcanic gases coming out of the volcano. In 2018, part of that road collapsed and fell into the crater, and the rest of it looks like, if you've ever seen that movie Tremors, where the <laughs> the giant worms just wreak havoc on the landscape, it, it looks like that. So that part of the road has been closed since 2018 and most likely won't reopen. Let's talk about the one-year anniversary of the 2022 Mauna Loa eruption. That event started on this day in 2022, last year. When you look back on that historic event, what kind of sticks out in your mind when you think back to that eruption? So a year ago, a year ago tonight at around 11.30 p.m., um, we woke up to the, one of the most spectacular eruptions in anybody's lifetime, and that was Mauna Loa erupting at the summit crater of Moko Aveo Veo for the first time since 1984. Right. Not to age myself, that was the year I graduated <laughs> from high school. So it had been a long time since Mauna Loa had erupted, and it was a spectacular eruption. It you know, we had closed the summit of Mauna Loa several weeks before the eruption because the earthquakes were indicating and USGS said, yeah, we're keeping a very close eye on this. And so luckily that area was closed because if anybody had been in the summit cabin or a Mauna, you know, at Red Hill or something, we would have had to gone up there and, and evacuate or hope for the best. <laughs> Not sure. Right. But luckily the area was closed and the lava filled Moco Aveo Veo kind of went, looked like it was going to go south for a little while, but then it eventually erupted out and flowed and fissured and fountained into the northeast flank out towards the uh, Saddle Road, Daniel K. Inouye Highway, and out of park boundaries. 
it was a really fortuitous eruption in many terms. One, not just because it flowed out of the park boundary and it wasn't our problem anymore, <laughs> but because it was in an area that is not inhabited by people. I think the damage it did was it covered up part of the Mauna Loa Observatory Road. It almost took out an endangered petrel colony that the park manages in the park boundary, with, which has an incredible cat-proof fence around it. But it missed those areas. It, like, you know, just started going down towards the Saddle Road and towards the Pahakaloa training area that's run by the Army. And then it stopped before it even hit the road or any real significant infrastructure. Um, definitely the county and the state and PTA did an exemplary job of setting up viewing areas for the public, which was wonderful because like many of the people I work with and, and my neighbors, I was out there quite a bit to check out the Mauna Loa flows and that amazing site. And that was that was a great experience. And I know Mauna Loa has been mostly quiet since the end of the 2022 eruption, but the USGS reported a small increase in seismic activity beneath the mountain last month. Is there anything you can share about the current status of the mountain, anything that Volcanoes National Park has been monitoring or anything like that? Well, anytime there's any kind of uptick in activity on Mauna Loa or Kilauea, our eyes are wide open, our ears are wide open, and we're, USGS is a phenomenal partner with us. Their scientists keep us informed of any concerns or potential interesting activity that might be happening. So yes, definitely keeping an eye on that. One thing that's new since the 2022 eruption is previously the summit and the summit cabin was closed. If you're a backcountry hiker and you want to do the summit of Mauna Loa, well, Mauna, the eruption covered almost five miles of trail. So, and we don't have plans to repair that for a while. There's other priorities where more visitors visit in the meantime, but we will repair it eventually. But we were able to open Mauna Loa Cabin a couple months back in partnership with DLNR. This is another area you can go. You can reach the cabin through Kapapala Ranch. You have to get permission from them, get a permit from us and Department of Land and Natural Resources. And you can hike up Inapo Trail to get to Mauna Loa Cabin. So we've restored access to the cabin. We cleaned it up, cleaned the Lua. Everything was pretty good mess up there, you know, from being ignored since last year but that area it, it is open now at least from the Inapo side and then from the park side you can hike again to Red Hill Cabin. Red Hill Cabin is open that's at the 10,000 foot level and then the flows that happened are not so far away from there. The flows are kind of off limits but you can hike in the general area um, and then the Red Hill Cabin and 10,000 feet doesn't sound like a lot. I've done that hike a couple times and it's very challenging. You also need a permit if you're going to stay overnight in the cabin. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Jessica. Really appreciate you. Okay, Russell. Hui ho. That was Hawaii Volcanoes National Park's Jessica Farrakane reflecting with HBR's Russell Subiono on the one-year anniversary of the 2022 Mauna Loa eruption. Kaluna o Kilauea, Ike ahi a kawahine. Last year's Mauna Loa eruption was an exciting moment for a longtime backcountry hiker Kavika Sungsun. The native Hawaiian grew up on Hawaii Island's Hamakua coast and graduated from Honoka'a High School in 1981. He spends much of his free time enjoying the Big Island's wide-open spaces, 
and frequently posts videos of his adventures around the island on social media, sharing some unique and remote sites with his audience. The conversation as Russell Subiona sat down with Singson last December to talk about his relationship with Mauna Loa. So the area that I'm standing in right now is called Humuula. Back in 1935, when Mauna Loa erupted, the lava flow came down the slopes of Mauna Loa and headed in the same path that today's flow is, is on. How long have you been hiking Mauna Loa? Oh, ever since I got out of the military, I got back to the Big Island in 1990, 91. And ever since then, I've been all, all around the Big Island. And Mauna Loa has been my destination many times to the summit. I can tell from a lot of your videos that you you do a lot of hiking in different areas, but yes. a lot of them seem to be in places that have lava or are lava related. What do you love so much about these backcountry hikes? The peacefulness, the serenity, and uh, basically that's my happy place. Once you find your happy place, basically, essentially I go there as often as I can because basically that's my medicine. That's the way uh, I find most peace. So and that's why I go there so often. When I got out of the military, I was going to either live in Oahu or live on the Big Island. I stayed in Oahu for about a month. After about a month, I said, I, I can't do it. And I need my own space. And up here, it's so easy to find your own space. In Oahu, it's very difficult. So whenever I go there, I'm a couple of days, and I'm always really longing to go back to the Big Island. The last time you were there, up on the summit of Mauna Loa, before the eruption on the 27th, did you get the sense that something spectacular was going to happen? When was the last time you hiked Mauna Loa? Well, I was, uh, maybe it was several months before the actual eruption. But every time I do go up there, the, I can feel the energy of the mountain. If you put, put my hand down on the ground, uh, as I described in some of my videos, the mountain literally is vibrating. Maybe some people are more sensitive to it than others. Some people won't notice it. But being the type of person that I am, I notice all, a lot of the little things, even the stuff that you cannot see, but you can feel deep within you. So that's how it is when I go up there. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to this era so much because I'm a little bit more sensitive to these things, being that I'm out there so much. And when I'm out there, I'm extremely open-minded, open-hearted. So I feel everything, not everything, but I feel a lot of things that a lot of people might brush off. I feel it. And that's why I gravitate toward this era because, you know, it's almost like the land, you the, the conscious level that we're on is, is so similar that I can relate to some people who are going to say that's just a mountain, but to me, it's not just a mountain because I related to that mountain on a different level. And that's why I go there so often. It's incredible. I don't have the vocabulary to basically describe what I feel. Can you describe Moku Aveoveo Crater, what it looked like the last time you were up there before the eruption? Yes, it was. it's a fairly large crater. And when I go up there, I usually go down into the crater. And that's where the energy seems to be the strong, the vibration seems to be more prevalent than other parts of the mountain. And a lot of times I'll just sit there. I even made a video of me running my 100-yard dash up there, which is not easy to do. Okay, 100 yards. Like always, I hope I don't fall flat on my face because of the oxygen, the lack of oxygen up here. Okay, 100 yards. You guys ready? I'm not ready, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm ready as I'll ever be. Woo, okay, we gang, ready? 100 yards, ready? Please don't let me fall flat on my face. Sit. So sometimes, a lot of times I go there and then I just sit. 
nothing but sit and open my mind and open my heart. I take my shoes off. I ground myself up there and the energy just, just flows. It's incredible. And you can do the kind of do that anywhere else in the road. You you know, go to the summit of the largest active volcano on this planet. I've watched a handful of your most recent videos and I don't want you to give away any specific locations because I don't want anyone else trying to find these, but you posted a video recently of your hikes where you were able to locate some of the bombs that were dropped on the 1935 Humuula lava flow. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that, how you how you came across them? As I said, I love to hike and I sometimes I'll just pick a spot. I can essentially look at the lava flow, the terrain. I already know before I even go there if it's going to be a good spot or not, just by looking at the lava. Mm-hmm. But that's what I do. And uh, I'm always fascinated with a little bit of history. And I knew about the bombings in 1935. So I did a video a while ago about the bombings and the history and why the bombing and what happened to the guys who actually bombed the flow and how it came to be. So I knew about this. So one day I was hiking up Marolo. I parked and I sit down and I look. And I look at all the terrains. And I've seen this one location that piqued my interest. I don't know why, but it did. So I went there. And hiking Mauna Loa is no easy task. It's extremely dangerous, very dangerous because of the type of lava and uh, the cavern, the lava tubes that's underneath the ground. See, the Big Island of Hawaii has the largest, longest, and deepest lava tube system in the world. So there's lava tubes all over the place. And a lot of it is very brittle. You can step on it and you go right through. That's why it's extremely dangerous. And I'm fairly confident that no one else will go where I went because of the, the danger that's involved to get in to the bombs. Anyway, I was hiking to the, my pinpointed location, and uh, as I was hiking, I came across bomb craters, impact craters, and I thought, hmm. Then I came upon fragments of metal shards. Then my interest started to peak. Okay, okay. So I kept following this particular flow, and lo and behold, I see the tail end of this bomb sticking out of the lava, and I immediately knew what it was. And so I was being at the tail end of the bomb was sticking out of the lava. I thought, I wonder if there's a lava tube around here with a front end. So right around the corner, there's a little hole, a little lava tube. I went in there and sure enough, I looked on the ceiling, the front end of the bomb was sticking in the ceiling. All right, I'm in this little lava tube, very small. And I came across this. What is that? That is a unexploded bomb that was dropped from an airplane and it penetrated the top of the lava and I apparently it didn't explode and it's stuck in the ceiling. Wow. Yeah, and this is like, a, I think it's like a 600 pound bomb and uh, it sat there for, at that point it was 78 years. I was a little taken aback and happy at the same time because I knew the history of it. So as curious as I am, you know, I got up, I went and I took some photos, some video, because I document this, but everything that I do. Mm-hmm. And I know no one else knows where this particular bomb is because it's extremely remote and extremely dangerous just to get to. I, you know, I did my thing, take some photos, videos, and then I went back, came back home, and uh, I thought, what am I going to do with this information? Yeah, I got to notify the authorities first. Mm-hmm. So I did, I called DLNR, I, I met them up there, and I, Told them where you can't really see it from the from the road, but I gave them the GPS coordinates. And then after that, I was free of the burden of knowing about where the bombs are without telling the authorities. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I was free to share it on social media. A lot of places I go to, 
I try not to share the location as much as possible for the very reason that you said. So, and then, I, you know, I went back actually a year later to see if anything was done with the bombs and we're still there. Because I found out that it was, uh, it was inert. It was thought in the 70s, I believe. Okay, that's good to know. And, you know, there's been people busted for trying to hike to get closer to the eruption and the lava flow. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about the kind of danger this poses for people, especially those that aren't familiar with the area? Well, from my experience of hiking through the lava flow, it can be dangerous. But I understand the county's point of view. It's not as dangerous as it pointed out to be because when you say lava flow flows in uh, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, they will allow you to get close up to the lava. I've seen thousands of people do that. So when they leave the jurisdiction of the national park, it becomes the jurisdiction of the state. The state, in my opinion, becomes overprotective, anal to the point where they not let people go to the lava flow. Now, how I say it is, as far as the culture goes, the Hawaiian culture, we've been living with volcanoes the entirety of our lives. So to limit, especially like me, that's my spiritual place. When I hike in the mountains, when I run, that's my happy place. It's, I get spiritual awakenings when I go there. Uh, to stop me from going there, I personally, I get offended because I know what I'm doing. And it's like when people go to church, they worship to their God when the Hawaiians make offering. I do the same thing in my own way. I'm very cautious. I know what I'm doing. So when they say uh, you cannot go there, I get upset because the joy and happiness, the spiritual enlightenment that I personally receive when I go to these places. But again, I can understand the safety aspect. You know, so I usually just keep my mouth shut and like I run and bury like it is what it is. You know, you kind of have it your way all the time. For someone like you who has hiked Mauna Loa and has history with lava fields, what does this Mauna Loa eruption mean to you? Do you have this sense of wonder? Are you excited about it or does it worry you a little bit? Personally, for me, I'm not worried at all. Wonderment, excitement, that's my that's my home. She's been here. You know, all my ancestors have been there through her, you know, and we've been in, on, and around her. She dictates what happens. We dictate what happens to a point as far as our personal concern. I know in Mauna Loa, they say Mauna Loa was when they erupt, I mean, erupt a cataclysmic explosion and you have to leave. I wouldn't leave. I just die with, I, I die here on the mountain, in the volcano, because that's my happy place. So as far as my personal safety and concern, if that's the way it is, I would, I would go. I'll be so happy with it. I'll be cool with it. You know, it, it's not a big thing because uh, at some point we all have to walk through that door, yeah, to the other side. So if something like that would happen for me, you know, it is good. because, Like I said earlier, that's my happy place. And what more beautiful thing would be that if you die in your happy place? Well, right on. Thank you so much for your time, Kavika. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Big Island resident and backcountry hiker Kavika Simpson talking with HPR's Russell Subiona about his experiences hiking in and around the Mauna Loa area. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the start of the 2022 Mauna Loa eruption. That's the program for today. Tomorrow we hear about a potential issue with property lines in Lahaina. One government official is warning the situation could extend the recovery process. 
Do you have any story ideas to share with us? Anyone you'd like to hear from? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation on our website or on Spotify, Apple, anywhere you tune in for podcasts. I'm Bill Dorman. Catherine Cruz is back tomorrow with more of the conversation.